Welcome to University of Iowa Insights, a monthly audio magazine featuring interviews with some of the world's leading thinkers, researchers, and teachers. In this, the February edition of our program, Christopher Clare visits with Pam White, director of University of Iowa Pentecrest Museums, who talks about the UI Museum of Arts post-flood partnership with the Figgy Art Museum in Davenport, the museum's presence on campus, and the process of envisioning a new art museum. Gary Galuzzo speaks with John Kuhl, researcher in the Public Policy Center and Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering, about Kuhl's federally funded study of a mileage-based road user charge system that might one day replace the current motor fuel tax. And Jen Brown talks to Beverly Davidson, professor of internal medicine in the Carver College of Medicine, about Davidson's research to develop treatments for neurodegenerative diseases using the blood-brain barrier as a therapy delivery system. I'm speaking with Pam White, director of UI Pentecrest Museums, about the UI Museum of Art's post-flood future and its present. Pam, why don't we start by discussing the Art Museum's ongoing partnership with the Figgy Art Museum in Davenport. We're very grateful for our partnership with the Figgy. It's a wonderful collaboration. Uh, they offered early on to be of assistance in whatever way. As time went by, we were aware that we needed to move our collection from the four different storage areas that it was in in Chicago. So I called up Sean O'Hara, the director of the Figgy, and I said, when you offered to help, how much space do you have and what did you really mean? Basically, except for the works that we have on campus and about 600 things that are still in conservation in Chicago, our entire collection is in the Figgy Museum in Davenport. They have a state-of-the-art, less than four-year-old building created by David Chipperfield. It's a beautiful space. And we not only store our collection there, but we have a gallery space. And our name is on the door, and so we're the UIMA at the Figgy, and that's kind of the watchword that we've taken for all of these places that we are. And we have our major paintings on view. We have the Jackson Pollock mural, our Ad Reinhardt, Max Beckman, Picasso, Matisse. Um, all of our major works are on view there we will be refreshing that display and may possibly be touring some of our collection in the future, but we'll always have some of our works on view there. The museum has a presence on the UI campus as well, most prominently in the Iowa Memorial Union's Ritchie Ballroom. What should visitors expect? People won't recognize it. Um, it's a, we built a room within a room. And so one of our provisos was that we could not harm the original construction because it is a historically protected building under FEMA standards. It's absolutely beautiful. When you walk into the space, I think a lot of people think that they are in like a, a New York gallery space. It's beautiful white walls, lovely floor, glass shelves, and we have about over 500 works in this space. It's a global presentation, so we have everything from ancient Sumerian pieces, African artwork, contemporary ceramics, paintings, and then we have a major collection of some of our prints. And this collection will grow. In addition to this space, we also have uh, another space at the Union 
that we can use on occasion, and it's the black box theater space. And this spring, we're going to present, it opens on March 27th, it's called Two Turntables and a Microphone. It's uh, photographs of Harry Allen, as well as some other works, featuring the works of Public Enemy, the images of early Public Enemy, and other people from the hip-hop culture. As we look forward, what has been the role of President Mason's envisioning committee for the UI Museum of Art? It wasn't to deal with specifics of space or place. It was to deal with, theoretically, how an art museum could play a major role in the educational mission of the university. So this committee has been meeting all fall, and it's expected that they will issue a report outlining the best practices that they feel should be included in a university museum. We've brought in experts all throughout the fall to talk to us. We've read a lot of articles. It's been a very hardworking committee. And from this background, there could certainly be other committees that could work on more of the specifics of how do we build a building that will incorporate these things. So this is kind of from 500, 5,000 feet, what can an art museum be? And the next step will be to really begin planning for that building. Thanks, Pam. For more information on the UI Museum of Art, visit www.uiowa.edu slash UIMA. My name is John Cool. I'm a professor in the Electrical and Computer Engineering Department at the University of Iowa College of Engineering, a researcher at the University of Iowa Public Policy Center, and principal investigator of a study looking at a mileage-based road user charge. John, what is the name of the study, and what is its basic goal? The Public Policy Center's National Evaluation of a Mileage-Based Road User Charge is a five-year, $14 million federally funded study evaluate the technical feasibility and public acceptance of a mileage-based charging system as a possible long-term replacement for the current motor fuel tax, the tax currently paid at the gas pump. Why is a replacement needed for the tax we currently pay at the gas pump? Our study is investigating a possible replacement for declining motor fuel taxes that currently pay for all of the maintenance and improvement of our highways. As vehicles have become dramatically more fuel efficient in the past 30 years, the amount of tax collected at the gas pump has failed to keep pace with the rising costs of building and maintaining our highway system. In the future, fuel tax revenues will decline even more as hybrid vehicles become more popular and with the introduction of all electric vehicles and cars powered by other sources such as hydrogen. It's necessary for the nation to come up with a plan for the long term that is convenient for road users and that will generate an appropriate amount of income to ensure the safety and usability of our nation's roads. Where is the study being conducted? How many people are involved? And what do they do? Overall, participants have been recruited in 12 locations nationwide, selected to closely match the overall demographics of the country as a whole. Currently, we have active participants in six of these sites, which are Portland, Maine, Miami, Chicago, Wichita, Kansas, Billings, Montana, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
Over the past two years, approximately 2,600 vehicles have had an onboard computer installed to record the charges that would have been due based upon highway miles driven uh, if a mileage-based road user system had been in place. Uh, for the study, however, no actual fees are collected and participants are compensated for their participation. John, how would drivers pay? Uh, various options are possible. One option is that drivers would receive invoices detailing the fees that they would be charged for their actual use of the roads. Um, the fees might differ from state to state, just as the current gas taxes differ in different in states. What have you learned about equipment reliability and user privacy? Uh, the equipment has proven to be quite robust. In fact, uh, we have uh, uh, reliability rates of uh, well over 99% in terms of uh, accurately recording uh, miles driven. Uh, in terms of user privacy, one of the very important questions which the study is attempting to assess is the, is the degree to which uh, people would worry about uh, the fact that a system like this could potentially uh, impact their personal privacy. And so we are uh, studying this issue very carefully uh, to assess whether or not uh, this would be an obstacle to the possible long-term implementation of this type of technology. How accepting are the study participants of the road user charge itself? We're still in the process of analyzing the data. Uh, however, it's fair to say that there are a very wide range of attitudes and opinions among the participants. Um, the final report, which will include a complete analysis of all of the data from the study, will be released in late 2010 and will be publicly available. Thank you, John. That was John Cool of the University of Iowa College of Engineering and the Public Policy Center. I'm talking today to Beverly Davidson, UI Professor of Internal Medicine, Neurology and Molecular Physiology and Biophysics, and Associate Director of the Iowa Center for Gene Therapy. Dr. Davidson, your research focuses on developing ways to treat fatal brain diseases using gene therapy. One hurdle that brain treatments must overcome is the blood-brain barrier. What exactly is the blood-brain barrier? So the blood-brain barrier, very simply put, separates the vasculature, the blood um, that perfuses the body, from the contents of the brain. And it helps keep um, infectious agents and things that uh, may be in the blood that may be toxic to the brain from entering the brain and causing any damage. And maybe a good way to think about it is if you envision a, a ball of yarn as all of the vessels in your brain. Everything inside of each single strand of yarn would be the blood streaming through your brain. Everything on the outside of that yarn would be the brain cells itself, the neurons that help uh, uh, transfer information and remember where you put your car keys. And so it's not good for those what's inside those strands of yarn and what's outside to commingle all the time. They uh, should be separate. The very nature of the blood-brain barrier, which keeps bad things from getting into the brain, creates an obstacle for us to get what we believe to be good things into the brain. Um, you recently discovered an approach that might make the blood-brain barrier part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Can you describe that discovery? Right. There, there's several ways that we envision trying to get material across the blood-brain barrier, and 
One, as you can imagine, you might poke little holes in the blood-brain barrier to, to let materials sort of percolate through and get from the inside of those, those strands of yarn in, into the brain cells themselves. We thought that that might not be the most optimal approach since you would not only allow access to what you're trying to get across, but also access to any other uh, potentially harmful material that might be in the blood. So the approach we decided to test was whether we could turn the cells that actually line the inside of those strands of yarn into enzyme-secreting factories. Those cells that would line the inside of that yarn would then secrete an enzyme that's missing in some of the disorders that we study, not only into the lumen of that strand of yarn, to the inside of that strand of yarn, but also outside of that strand of yarn, which would provide it ready access to the brain cells. So we essentially took advantage of the blood-brain barrier in the most direct way possible. You recently received three grants totaling nearly $3 million from the National Institutes of Health. How will these grants help you move your research forward? These grants allow my group to collaborate with three other groups in helping translate our ideas forward to the clinic. For example, our recent findings of being able to take advantage of the blood-brain barrier for providing therapeutic agents to the brain. We're collaborating with a group in Missouri to test whether or not this is an, a reasonable approach to treat lysosomal storage diseases. These disorders affect children, and they um, are progressive, fatal, neurodegenerative diseases. The children are, are, very simply put, missing an enzyme that allows them to degrade toxic substances within the cells all over the body, really, but it's principally the brain that becomes most affected. Using this approach, we're able to get the enzyme that's missing back in into models and correct their uh, enzyme deficiencies. We're also testing this approach with the group at Harvard as to its applicability for Alzheimer's disease. And finally, the third era funding grant was received in collaboration with a group at Oregon Health Sciences University. This is in collaboration with a, a former postdoctoral trainee from my laboratory who is interested and keen to stay involved in research in Huntington's disease and we're testing very important questions into whether or not RNA interference, a novel form of therapy, is applicable to this class of dominantly inherited genetic disorders. That was Dr. Beverly Davidson discussing her research. For more information, visit www.medicine.uiowa.edu forward slash labs forward slash Davidson. This podcast was produced by the University of Iowa Office of University Relations. For more information on our podcasts or to subscribe, visit us at news.uiowa.edu.